Today's passage is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, forgive me, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between. So you have enough time in light of this parable. Number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? 
2, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. I never had a surprise birthday party growing up. I did things with friends for my birthday. I ate cake and did the whole song and dance. But it wasn't until a few years into marriage that Hannah, discovering this childhood neglect, masterfully planned and orchestrated one for me. I had no idea what I'd been missing out on. Now, if you've been thrown a surprise party for your birthday or any other occasion, you know that the unique, uh, you know what the unique experience that the surprise part of it feels like. It's this odd mix of light and lightning fast progression from initial fear, because you might not associate people being in your home without your knowledge as a good thing, uh, to stunned shock as your brain processes why they're there, and then the gratitude that comes from feeling so loved, cared for, and celebrated. The birthday parties I'd had growing up were fun and I felt loved, but I was also somewhat involved in their planning. And having had a hand in it just kind of compromised the experience of being rejoiced over. Even if that's the opposite of everyone else's intent, influencing your own celebration ends up mitigating the experience of grace. In other words, there is a big difference between your birthday being a special occasion versus you being a cause for celebration. To be celebrated or rejoiced over is, it's, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's something we long for and hopefully, but not always, we've experienced as kids, but as adults, it can feel a little uncomfortable. Now, maybe I'm wrong and you would feel zero hesitation or awkwardness in being celebrated 24-7, so I'll just speak for myself here. And for me, there's something about my personality and story that makes me long for the affirmation of being celebrated but I feel selfish or guilty for wanting that, never mind saying it out loud right now. I am terrible at receiving compliments, which are a very short verbal celebration. And in general, I start feeling extremely uncomfortable when others appreciate, praise, validate, or express some other form of rejoicing over me. I feel all that pretty acutely but I know I'm far from unique because I have been shaped by the same cultural assumptions that you all have. As kids, we love being celebrated and don't feel self-conscious about it all. That's, that's actually really okay and good and healthy, but that is not the case as adults, is it? Why is that? Yeah, sure, we've perhaps attained a level of self-awareness and humility that's, that it's not about me and should be primarily about serving and giving to others. But if we Christians actually believe Jesus's words that it is better to give than to receive, then why do we so consistently deprive others of the opportunity to give to us through celebration as much as we do? Why do we say that it is a blessing to serve or celebrate others, but then disallow others to serve or celebrate us? Ultimately, the root of this ironically selfish discomfort and allowing others to love, serve, and rejoice over us is an insidious delusion that we must somehow find ourselves on our own. Somewhere along the way, we imbibed the Kool-Aid that quote-unquote maturity meant leaving childlike delight and being delighted in behind in order to embark on a grand adventure of self-discovery. We operate 
off of this remarkably graceless cultural assumption that if we don't determine who we are for ourselves, then the unearned celebration of others isn't just undeserved or inauthentic. It might even be morally wrong. If we didn't earn the right to be celebrated and rejoiced over in our own way and on our terms, then that acclaim is just misled at best. Now, I know all of this might sound like a stretch, but this isn't just a sociological bug of individualist American culture. It's actually a metaphysical feature. It is a a civil religion, often confused with Christianity, that both theologians and psychologists refer to as moralistic therapeutic deism. And frankly, it's what many of you grew up believing, either because you grew up within evangelicalism or wholly apart from Christianity or the church. So even if this isn't a conscious or explicit quest that you're on, it is in the air you breathe and pervades so many of our assumptions. (laughs) In fact, I would even go so far as to claim that it is the primary reason why the United States is the most wealthy and most medicated, the most comfortable and most anxious society in human history. It is as unsustainable as it is unsatisfying. Now, the three parables that you read for this week follow a very different pattern and illustrate a very different understanding of grace. All three begin with something that at least seems to have begun as lost, a a sheep, silver coin, or a son, which is then found, and the response of all involved is, well, it's the, the functional equivalent of a massive and spontaneous surprise birthday party celebrating that which has been found. I say that they seem to have begun as lost very intentionally because something must have been had or, or not lost in order for it to be missing in the first place. I know that sounds like an obvious, even duh kind of point to harp on, but I say all this to question this especially moralist, this especially American ideology of moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, let me put it this way. Is it possible that all our effort to, quote, find ourselves is only making us more and more lost? I'm not talking about spurning the kind of healthy differentiation that asserts a level of independence from your parents that Scripture also affirms as healthy when it says to leave and cleave, right? Instead, I'm asking if it is possible that we've turned that healthy differentiation into an idol that both leaves us more anxious and dismisses a good and valid universal human need as selfishness. That is, the right and good longing to be rejoiced over. Because maybe we're made for it. That's the setup for this week, but before I dive into it further, I I want you to know that we'll actually be taking three weeks to answer that question thoroughly. So this will be the beginning of a three-part kind of mini-series within our Stories for Life sermon series on the parables of Jesus. Rather than tackle each of these three parables in turn, we're actually going to look at them through their common unifying lens of what it means to be lost and found and rejoiced over. There are some subtle differences between them as well, and the longest and most detailed one, commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, will take the next two weeks alone to walk through because it's, it's just, that, that's just that awesome, and quite frankly, it's worth dwelling on. But for this week, we are going to primarily focus on the big picture across all three while also rolling up our sleeves to more closely examine the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So let's do that. Now, I've already pointed out the theme of being 
lost and found and rejoiced over that these three all have in common and to the point of being almost redundant and repetitive. In fact, using three similarly constructed parables with three near identical purposes is precisely intended to contrast or highlight the how and why of their differences. For example, take, take the three things that were lost, right? A sheep needs a shepherd because left unintended, it will wander off on its own. Man, like, like sheep don't even know that they're lost. <laughs> they slowly but surely just wander off by following their stomachs from one patch of grass to another, not realizing that the chronic hyper-focus of one's hunger, literal or metaphorical, has led them astray and away from the stability, security, and safety of the flock. It wasn't you know, intentional on the sheep's part, but it happened nonetheless. Sheep, in other words, become accidentally and gradually lost. The silver coin, on the other hand, is an inanimate object that can't move on its own at, at all. <laughs> it has been misplaced for some reason, perhaps because it was neglected or unappreciated, but Jesus doesn't really explain how that happened. Either way, the silver coin is in need of being found and would otherwise never be if someone did not actively search for it. Where the sheep is gradually lost, the silver coin is passively or helplessly lost. Literally so, in that it is unable to help itself. Lastly, the younger son, in, as described in the longest of these three parables, adds a missing dimension to our lostness, that of an active agency. Where both the sheep and the coin became lost accidentally or passively, respectively, the younger son very intentionally and explicitly rejects his father to go and, well, it doesn't really say why he leaves. He could be searching for personal meaning, dignity, value, or worth, or it could be a more shameless hedonism as this parable is most often taught. Either way, the point is that he actively chose to do so on his own terms, according to his own desires or preferences, and in his own way. Sound familiar? <laughs> Isn't it both deeply disturbing and oddly comforting how predictable humanity is? Right? It's, it's, it's kind of stunning sometimes how easily we dismiss Scripture as dated or irrelevant and not having anything to do with our culture, but it turns out that there is truly nothing new under the sun. But I digress because we're going to dig much deeper into that parable starting next week. But Jesus' point in using three similar but distinct forms of lostness is this. Humanity is ever so creative in getting lost in the pursuit of finding ourselves. And despite our remarkable creativity, there is no depth nor degree. There is no kind nor type of lostness that can prevent us from being found by God. Which brings us to the other contrasting differences here. You see, where the, the sheep... Silver and sun all represent us in our lostness. The seeking shepherd, the woman aided by her lamp, and the waiting father all add beautiful and subtle shades of meaning to what it, is, what it means to be found by God. Now, let's actually start with the last one first as it's the most explicit and obvious of the three. God is frequently described in Scripture as a father. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, Paul refers to God as the particular father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, God is not 
merely like a father. He is the father whom all other dads bear the imperfect resemblance thereof. This father, even after being shamelessly or shame, shamelessly and shamefully taken advantage of by his son, again, more on that next week, still lovingly longs for his return and runs to embrace him the moment he sees his silhouette crest the horizon. The waiting father then is the presence and defining characteristic of being found. Home, it turns out, is not where the heart is, but where the father is. Now, lest we think that our being found is merely a function of our agency or choice, the seeking shepherd disabuses us of that notion with very pointed language. He didn't just seek the lost sheep, He explicitly left the 99 in order to do so. Being found was not the sheep's choice, but the shepherd's. Upon finding said sheep, the shepherd doesn't cajole or persuade it to return to the flock. He just up and carries it on his shoulders, whether it wants to or not. In the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches that he is the true shepherd and then makes it unavoidably clear that he sees himself as the shepherd of this parable specifically when he summarizes his entire ministry's purpose just a few chapters later in Luke 19.10, which quotes him as saying, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's the language of this parable, of all three parables. Though the father waits for the lost to return home, it is not an idle waiting For he sent the shepherd to find lost sheep and bring them back to his embrace. (sighs) By now you've realized where Jesus is going with this. And that in addition to each of the three parables illustrating the diversity in our lostness, there is a beautiful and complementary diversity in how God as Trinity is unified in his finding what was lost even as each person of the tree does that finding in distinct ways. You might then be expecting me to tell you that the woman in the parable of the lost coin is the Holy Spirit. And that's close, but it's not quite right. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and God's very presence among his people until Jesus returns to restore and renew all things. Jesus explains to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Luke and beginning of the book of Acts that he has to leave and return to the Father, Son in order to send the Holy Spirit to the church as a gift that is intended to empower our ministry in the world. All of this happens in a beautifully distinct way that the Holy Spirit alone and uniquely brings. That is, where the Father awaits to embrace and the Son seeks as a shepherd The New Testament especially describes the Holy Spirit's role as illuminating or revealing. That's right. In the parable of the lost coin, the Holy Spirit isn't the woman, but the lamp that shines the light of truth into the dark corners of the world. Despite being lost, that light reflects off of the image of God that we bear as human beings, revealing to all the intrinsic dignity, value, and worth that we are imbued with despite being forgotten in a dusty corner. This is a dignity, value, and worth that we can never achieve on our own or find through self-discovery. God does not forget us, but instead he pushes back the darkness to expose not how worthless we are apart from what we've achieved or earned on our own, but to show us how valuable we are to him 
by sheer virtue of being valued by him. That was the case both before and after we became lost. And is God's cause for celebration, his raison d'etre upon being found. Who then is the woman carrying the lamp lit by the spirit of God? who's seeking apart from the lamp isn't actually all that different from the shepherds? Well, I hinted at it earlier, but let me make it explicit. She is the church, the bride of Christ, in and among whom the Holy Spirit dwells for the sake of our continuing the shepherd's ministry to proclaim the good news of his saving love. That's right. We actually get to participate in God's cosmic mission, his most impassionate an impassioned endeavor as unreal. No single parable could encapsulate the love God has for the lost, but each offers distinct and important dynamics of his pursuit, the sum of which is somehow infinitely greater than their parts. Frankly, the more I try to describe it, the more I am at a total loss for words capable of describing both the sheer passion and relentless determination exhibited by the Trinitarian God who has poured every ounce of his infinite faculties into finding us and bringing us home. And that actually, that brings us to our final point. Of the three of them together, if the three of them together are each distinct musical instruments playing the same melody, whose song is the relentless tri-personal pursuit of God, then the refrain or the chorus of each stanza is the why of that pursuit. You probably noticed it when you read it earlier. They're not just parables about how we become lost or how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit find us again. They also paint a picture of God's heart, of his all-consuming motivation, which is delight. This is what the author of Hebrews was trying to articulate when he exhorts the church to look to Jesus as, quote, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God is not content. His joy is not complete until we are found by him and in him. I've often said over the years that we know God primarily through knowing who we are to him. And who we are to him is is cause for unmitigated celebration. To be rejoiced over is simply not possible if we are ultimately responsible for finding ourselves. And And any conclusion that it's possible or that we actually have achieved that is both false and not lasting. Rather, we can only find our true selves when we are found in the Father's loving embrace. And that's exactly what we're going to dig into next week. And until then, I want you to hear the words of Zephaniah 3.17 as a benediction, a good word that is objectively true for all of us, for all of you who are found in Christ Jesus. Hear this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen.